we come now to chapter 16 and the pouring out of the bowls of wrath. And I come definitely now to verse 1. I'm reading from my translation. And I heard a great voice out of the sanctuary or the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is still in charge here. Remember way back when he opened the seven-sealed book, and that ushered in this entire series of sevens. And he's not through. He is in command to the end of this book, friends. He is the one who's marching to victory. He is the one that the power and the glory and the majesty belong to him. And this is his judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. Now, the Father has committed all judgment unto him. And he's the one that gives the command that sends them out. There's no longer delay, no longer an interval or an intermission. The hour has come, the order is given, and the seven angels execute the command. Now, it's difficult for man, even Christians, to believe that God is going to pour out his wrath on a rebellious and God-hating world and destroy this civilization. But my friend, everything that you look at today is under the judgment hand of God. I'd love if I had time to just stay here for a few moments. I know when Ms. McGee and I first came to Southern California, we thought we'd entered the millennium, by the way, when we came out here. But those were the good old days before all this great population came out and before we had smog and traffic. I still love it, however, but nevertheless, it's not like it was then. Every Monday, we'd take time off, go see something. We'd drive to the beach, to the mountains, to the desert. And I know that one time we were driving out Wilshire Boulevard, and it's a very attractive street. I tell you, drive out at night, you could see all the liquor signs and all that the world of glamour has to offer today in every department that would satisfy the flesh in every way. It would satiate all of the demands of the flesh. And as we were driving out there, I said to my wife, I said, you know, this is beautiful, isn't it? It's interesting. But I said, do you know that all of this is passing away? You remember that the apostle said to the Lord Jesus, look at the temple. He said that not one stone would be left on another. They said, look at it, how beautiful it is. They were amazed that he'd make a statement like that. And he told them not one stone was going to be left on another. I said to my wife, I said, you know, all of this is passing away. It's under the judgment hand of God. God's going to judge it all. It's all going up in smoke someday. Believe me, we need to make our investments in heaven where neither rust nor moth doth corrupt and thieves can't break through and steal it. Because I tell you, down here, you're going to lose it someday. Somebody says, I've got my investments that are guilt-edged. I've got my bonds in a safety deposit box. Oh, I didn't say somebody's going to get them, friends. I'm saying, you're going to leave them someday. And that's just as bad. In fact, that's even worse than if a thief stole them. Because you're going to release your hand in death. And you're going to turn them loose and move out. This world we're living is under the 
judgment hand of God. And it's hard for believers to accept that. We have been fed so much of the saccharine sweetness of love, this insipid preaching of liberalism. And the average man believes that all is sweetness and light. That is rose water and roses. And God would not discipline or punish anyone. Well, read the book of Revelation, and this is judgment. Now I'm reading verse 2 here. And the first went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a noisome and grievous sower upon the man that had the mark of the wild beast and that worshipped his image. Vincent writes, Each angel, as his turn comes, withdraws from the heavenly scene. In other words, the angel leaves the place where the mercy seat is. And it's now judgment. And he leaves that. And he comes out and pours the judgment bowl of wrath upon the earth. Now, this one is quite interesting. It looks as if God is engaged in germ warfare upon the followers of Antichrist. Scripture states that the life of flesh is in the blood, and also death is in the blood. And these putrefying sores are worse than leprosy or cancer. And as man discovers a remedy today for one disease, another that's more frightful appears. These are judgments of God by which he reveals physically what man is morally, utterly corrupt. And this compares to the sixth plague in Egypt, and is the same type of sower a boil. It's interesting to note that Moses predicted judgment that was coming upon Israel someday just like this. And that is given to us back in the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. Probably I'll take a moment off and just turn to that and read to you. In Deuteronomy 28, 15, it says, "...but it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee." Verse 27. Now, for here's the list of them. "...the Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt, and with hemorrhoids, and with the scab, with the itch, whereof thou canst not be healed. This is a terminal sore, by the way. And then verse 35, another. The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed from the sole of the foot to the top of the head. And Moses predicted that. Now, this is for those who receive the mark of the beast. Now, those that didn't, they're in a bad way also. We've already seen that. They can't bind or sell. And the old bromide today, a man must eat, and he'll do anything for that. If a man has a family that's starving, and he can't work, and he can't buy, therefore, and he can't beg, nobody will give to him, and he has several starving little children... You know, I'm not going to blame him if he breaks into a market and gets something for them, because his little children have got to eat. That is a strong drive that man has. He must eat. And therefore, that 
awful thing that's put upon man unless he has the mark of the beast. But those that have the mark of the beast are not going to have it so easy because at the end of the great tribulation, God will judge them with this. And this is a judgment of God. And may I just add this? I have always interpreted the cancer that I had as a judgment from God. I still do it today that I feel that's what it was. And the fact God healed me is the fact that God forgave me and has given me my greatest ministry since then. So I am rejoicing in that. But this doesn't cause these people to turn to God. Now, let me read verse 3 here, the second bowl. And the second poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living soul died, even the things in the sea. Now, this plague is more severe than the second trumpet. I told you we've come now to the worst of all. When the second trumpet was blown, only one-third of the sea became blood. Now, here it's the total sea, and the blood is as of a dead man. Now, blood's the token of life. Scripture says the life of the flesh is in the blood, and the sea's a great reservoir of life. It's teeming with life, and the salty water is a cathartic for the filth of the earth. However, in this plague, blood is the token of death, and the sea becomes a grave of death instead of a womb of life. The cool sea breezes become a stench from the carcasses floating on the surface of the water that's now bloody and lining the shore. Commerce is paralyzed. Human beings die like flies. The first plague in Egypt, you remember, was the turning of the waters of the Nile into blood. Striking similarity here. I wonder if we realize today how much we're dependent on God. The light company, the gas company, and the water company all send me bills. But where did they get the light and the gas and the water? Well, it's quite obvious that they had something to do in getting it to us. But God is the one who created light and the gas and the water also. But has God ever sent you a bill for sunshine, for the water you drink and the air you breathe? Have you paid him? And he's not sent his bill, and you'd not be able to pay it if he did. God, who has been so gracious to a Christ-rejecting world, will at last judge all the earth. The angels pour out the bowls in the day of God's wrath. Now, the third bowl of wrath, verses 4 through 7. And the third poured out. His bowl into the rivers and the fountains of the waters, and it became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou, who art and who was the Holy One, because thou didst judge these things. For they shed the blood of saints and prophets, and blood didst thou give them to drink. They're worthy. And I heard the altar saying, Yea, the Lord God the Almighty, true and righteous are his judgment. Now this plague similar to that of the third trumpet, is again more severe. There, one-third of the fresh water was affected. Here, the total water supply of the earth will be cut off. This means destruction of human life on an unparalleled plane. The angel of the waters, well, he's an angel who's superintendent of God's water department. And this reveals, I think, another 
ministry of angels as it affects creation. They are in charge of the different departments of the physical universe. We've seen the four angels in this book who control the winds. This angel, who knows the whole story, now declares that God is right and holy in this act of judgment. And my friend, whatever God does is righteous and holy. If you don't agree with him, (laughs) that's too bad. You are wrong, not God. Imagine a little man standing up today and saying concerning the Creator, I don't think he's doing right. Well, I have a statement to make to you. In fact, a question. What are you going to do about it? In fact, what can you do about it? If you're not in agreement with God, you better get in agreement with Him, my friend. God is righteous in everything that He does. Now, they shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and bloods did thou give them to drink. That's poetic justice with a vengeance. Those who take the sword will perish with the sword, and the shedding of blood leads to the shedding of blood. These who are being judged made martyrs of God's people, and now God is forcing those who kill them to drink blood for the righteous blood they spill. And the prayers under the altar are now being answered. God was long time getting to it, but he's got to it. And the world is guilty before him. Now, we see here the pouring out of the fourth bowl. And the fourth poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who hath the power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Now, the Lord Jesus predicted that there would be signs in the sun in the great tribulation. He said, "...there shall be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars on the earth, distress the nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring." That's Luke 21, 25. Now, the Old Testament had a great deal to say about judgment in the great tribulation due to the excessive heat of the sun. In Deuteronomy 32, 24, "...they shall be burnt with hunger and devoured with burning heat and with bitter destruction. I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them with the poison of serpents of the dust." Then Isaiah, in 24, verse 6, "...therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate." Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. You'll recall back in Malachi, we saw, Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts. It shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now, all the Lord would have to do today is to remove one or two blankets of atmosphere and it would heat us up, I'll tell you that. In fact, I feel like that in some of the summers we've been having in Southern California, that he took off a blanket or two. And then all he'd have to do would be to pull the earth a little closer to the sun. Not much, but we wouldn't be able to survive. But this is a frightful period in which Isaiah states that the earth will be decimated at that time. And that bears out what our Lord said, except those days should be shortened, no flesh would be saved. And his own are preserved. 
He said concerning them, The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. This promise is quite meaningless to us today, but it's going to be a great comfort to the believer in the great tribulation. And yet we're told here that in spite of all of that, men blaspheme the name of God. Now, friends, that shows that the human heart is incurable, and no amount of punishment will purify and change it. And by the same token, the great tribulation is not for the purification of the church. Nowhere is it stated that. Nowhere is it stated that the saints are being purified by the great tribulation. It's a judgment upon the earth. We now turn to the fifth bowl of wrath, and I'm reading verses 10 and 11. And the fifth poured out his bowl upon the throne of the wild beast, and his kingdom was darkened. And they chewed their tongues from their pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they repented not of their works. Now, the throne of the wild beast, I think here makes it clear that the wild beast back in Revelation 13 is a man. I'm sure that, at least I hope you came to that conclusion when we were looking at Revelation 13, that first beast. And it's also a kingdom, but you have to have the king first. Now, his kingdom, we're told, was darkened. Now, that's a strange darkness, which might be called black light. We have that today. Can't see anything, but it's light nevertheless. It's a frightening thing. As the sun's wattage is increased during this period, why, it gets darker instead of lighter. The heat will be greater but the light will be less. And there's a remarkable similarity to the darkness of Egypt during the ninth plague, by the way. And the Old Testament's prophets had a great deal to say about it. I can't quote all of them, but in Isaiah 62, "...for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee." And there are any number of scriptures that we could give you. In Joel, we saw that, by the way. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land travel, for the day of the Lord cometh. It is nigh at hand a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and a thick darkness. And this is a picture. Nahum mentioned it. Amos mentioned it. Zephaniah mentioned it. And this now, John is merely saying, this is where it fits in to the program of God in the great tribulation period. Now, our Lord confirmed it. He said, in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And they chewed their tongues from their pain. Just think of the intensity of the suffering that's caused by all the bowls of wrath. And what does it do? Well, it doesn't affect man. Man in his wickedness and his deep depravity does not turn to God. Now, there are two self-evident facts at this point. God is righteous in pouring out the bowls of wrath. And let's remember that. And Jesus is the judge here. He is in charge. He's handing out the punishment. Now, men are not led to repentance by suffering. Paul spoke of that. 
Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And here it is. It doesn't change man. Now we have the pouring out of the sixth bowl here. And will you notice it? And the sixth poured out his bowl upon the great river. The river Euphrates, the water was dried up that the way might be made ready for the kings that come from the sun rising. Now, the Euphrates is called the Great River. And just as the Mediterranean Sea in the Bible is called the Great Sea. And the prominence of the Euphrates River in the Word of God should not be overlooked. It was first mentioned in Genesis 2. It's designated over 25 times in the Bible. And in this verse that we have just read, it is seen in connection with the sixth plague. It was prominent in the first state of man on the earth, so it's featured in his last state, that of the great tribulation. It was the cradle of man's civilization. And obviously, it's going to be the grave of man's civilization. It was a border between east and west, flowing 1,800 miles, over half of it navigable. It's wide and deep which makes it difficult for an army to pass over it. Abraham was called a Hebrew, and some interpret that as meaning he came from the other side of the Euphrates. It was the eastern border of the land that God promised to Abraham. That's the border. He says in Joshua 1, 4, "...from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even under the great river, the river Euphrates." Now, it became the eastern border of the Roman Empire. And the Euphrates will be miraculously dried up, thus erasing the border of east and west. And the kings of the sun rising might come to the battle of Armageddon. You remember in the past, Tamerlane came out of the east and swept across those plains with a tremendous horde. And Genghis Khan did the same thing. Those are just little tokens of what's going to happen in the last days when the border, or whatever it is, that is there, that separates east and west. And we've seen this before. Why, these great hordes that have never moved west, they now come on a great crusade to Palestine. And that's where the bulk of the population of the world is today. And having a smattering of the gospel, they choose Antichrist. And they move out of the east across the Euphrates. The picture is frightful. I wonder if anyone could doubt, with hundreds of millions pouring into Palestine, that the blood will be up to the horse bridles. Now, verses 13 and 14, we have an interlude. The kings of the inhabited earth proceed to Armageddon between the sixth and seventh of all of the sevens, we've had a break, a hiatus, and a filling in of details. And we have that here. I'm reading now verses 13 and 14 in my translation, which I do not recommend. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the wild beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, as it were, frogs, for they are spirits of demons working signs, 
which go forth upon the kings of the whole inhabited earth, to gather them together to the war, not the battle, to the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now, this is, if you please, this is Armageddon and so-called, because when we get over to verse 15 and 16, and I just well read that now, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked. They see his shame. And he gathered them together in a place which is called in Hebrew, Armageddon. All right? Between the sixth and seventh bowl of wrath here is this interlude. And that's been the program that John has followed. My, the book of Revelation, divides itself, you see, if you pay attention to the divisions. Now, the seven performers being the one exception, of course, and they had to bring in the interlude. It was there at the end. Now, this brings us to Armageddon, which is not a single battle, but a war called Armageddon. It's triggered... I believe by the coming of Russia down from the north sometime around the middle of the tribulation period. The campaign extends the length of Palestine to the valley of Jehoshaphat and the mountains of Edom. It will continue for approximately three and a half years. It will be concluded by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven to establish his kingdom. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings then." Now, we are introduced here to the trinity of hell, Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. They act in unison in forcing the nations of the world to march against Israel in an attempt to destroy God's purposes on this earth. You see that God had promised Abraham and those after him. He gave certain promises. He made certain covenants with these people, and those covenants are going to stand just like John 3.16 stands for us today. Now, I want to say this, and I want to say it carefully and kindly, and it's this, that there is a system of theology today that passes as conservative. And it takes the position that God is through with the nation Israel. All of those covenants, they are negated. All of those covenants are canceled out. God doesn't intend to make good on them at all. God is through with Israel. And all of those promises are taken, and there are literally hundreds of them in the Old Testament, and they're spiritualized. And arbitrarily they do this, with no scriptural grounds for it whatsoever. Now, Origen, in the early church, one of the few that was way out in left field of the church fathers, he was one of the very few, came from North Africa, and he started this method of spiritualizing instead of literalizing Scripture. And we need to remember that we're dealing with that which is literal. And this is the purpose of Satan, friends, to destroy God's covenants with Israel and not make them good. And that's the reason he moves in here, bringing the whole world against this little nation. And that's what will happen in the Great Tribulation period. And may I say this now very carefully. I believe that this viewpoint, although right now accepted by a great many, will, as eschatology, the study of prophecies develop, will become a heresy in the church. 
You mark my words on that. I may not be around to see it, but just remember, McGee said that way ahead of time. And I believe that. Now we've come here to Armageddon. This is a tremendous scene, as we have seen. And I want to just say a word about several things here. It speaks of the frogs. Well, are they literal or not? Well, they were literal in Egypt, and they could be here. But I'm willing to accept them as a symbol. And they say, wait a minute, I thought you didn't accept anything as a symbol unless it is said it is, or you have reason to believe. Well, it says, as it were, frogs. doesn't say they're frogs, as it were. And I think John's always very careful to give us an accurate picture of it, you see. And I think a very definite and dramatic picture has been given to us in a very vivid manner by Dr. Seiss. He says they're spirits, they're unclean spirits, they're demon spirits. They're sent forth into activity by the dragon trinity. They are the elect angels to awaken the world to the attempt to abolish God from the earth. They are frog-like in that they come forth out of the pestiferous quagmires of the universe. Do their work amid the nations with their noisy demonstrations till they set all the kings and armies of the whole earth in enthusiastic commotion for the final crushing out of the Lamb and all his powers." May I say to you that we've seen today that the news media can become a propaganda agent to carry out the purpose of men that are in the background. They can just brainwash us, brainwash the public. And that's exactly what this trinity of evil are going to do. They'll have the nations of the world marching against Israel. Now, the Lord Jesus is the only one can stop this. Their help does not come from the north or the south or the east or west. That's where their trouble's coming from. Their Lord comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And listen to him now. He says, verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Now, he never comes as a thief to the church. He says to the church in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, But ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. He doesn't come as a thief to the church. Thief is not somebody you welcome, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Well, my friend, the church welcomes him. You don't put a sign on your door when you go off on a visit and say, Mr. Thief, I've left the back door open. Go around. Silver's in the third shelf. Just help yourself. You never welcome a thief. You lock him out. He comes as a thief. And we saw at the beginning of Revelation, the whole earth will mourn because of him. They don't want him to come. They would like to shut him out from coming to this earth. And he speaks here of those that keep their garments. What garment is that? Well, Edersheim sheds light on this phrase by explaining that the captain of the temple made his rounds during the night to see if the guards were awake and alert. If any was found asleep, he was either beaten or his garment set on fire. And you talk about the first streaker, it was at the temple that got his shirt caught on fire. He took off, I want to tell you, friends, and he was a streaker. He says, here, be sure you don't lose your shirt in that day. Be sure that you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And Armageddon is a war, and I do want to emphasize that. And in verse 16, here we see the only occurrence of the word Armageddon actually in Scripture. And I would like to give you a description of it. 
I've been there, been there several times to the little mound in the valley of Esdraelon, actually one of the most fertile valleys I've ever seen. I guess it is the most fertile valley in the world today. And in that has come Nebuchadnezzar and Assyria and Napoleon Bonaparte came there. Gentiles have been there. Saracens have been there. Christian crusaders, anti-Christian Frenchmen, Egyptians, Persians, Druzes, Turks and Arabs and what have you. They've all been there. That's the picture given to us here. We have here the pouring out now the seventh bowl of the wrath of God. And I'm glad to get them all poured out. Verses 17 and 18. And it says, And the seventh poured out his bowl upon the air. And a great voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were lightnings and voices and thunders, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not, since there were men upon the earth, so great an earthquake, so mighty. Now, this is the last series of seven judgments before the coming of Christ, and this is the seventh and last of the last seven. In other words, we're right at the end of the great tribulation here, and the only one at this point that could deliver these people and set up a righteous kingdom on this earth and bring peace to the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they do not look to the north, east, south, or west, but my help cometh from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, that is the picture here. And we find out that he pours out upon the air, it says. In other words, this is space and no geographical location is given. The Lord Jesus controls space also. And the temple has been mentioned again and again and again. And it's mentioned here. We're identified with the people now, and that's Israel. Whether we like it or not, that nation will go through the great tribulation period. 144,000 of them are going to make it. I do not know how many more. I think there'll be another saved company a great company of Gentiles or sealed. They're going to make it through the great tribulation period. And it'd be unfortunate if the church did get in it because they're not sealed here. These are the only two groups sealed. But the church, you see, is not going to be here. Enoch was taken. He was translated because he didn't enter the time of the judgment of the flood. Now, Noah did, and Noah was preserved in the flood. God had two ways of saving people in the great tribulation period. First, saving them out of it by taking them out of the world, as he did Enoch, and saving them in it, as he did Noah. And God will save people in the great tribulation period, but not the church. They leave the earth. Now, will you notice, a great voice came out of the temple from the throne. Now, that voice is not identified I personally believe that it's the voice of none other than the Son of God. His message is recorded. It's done. That's the second time we've heard him say it. When he's hanging on the cross, he said, It's finished. It's done. Tetelestai. And now again he says it. When he had wrought out redemption, it's finished. And you can have a finished redemption if you won't. There'll be a judgment, my friend, but it'll be brought to an end. The writer to the Hebrews, 
therefore, was right in asking the question, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, the Word of God makes it very clear that in the great tribulation period, and this is at the end of it, there is to be an earthquake that probably will shake the entire world. And we gather that from verses 19 through 21, and I'll read them. And the great city became divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give to her the cup of the wine of the indignation of his wrath. And every island fled away, and mountains were not found, and great hail, as it were, a talent weight, comes down out of heaven upon man. And men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof is exceeding great. Now, this concludes the great tribulation period, this great earthquake, and it divides the great city, which is Jerusalem, into three parts. And though the center of the earthquake is in Jerusalem, it apparently is not confined there, because the cities of the nations fell. That tells us something of the extent and vast destruction of the earthquake. And Babylon is mentioned specifically again. It was mentioned back in chapter 14, verse 8. And we take it up in the next two chapters, so I'll reserve our comment for those two. And every island fled away. And it reveals that even the islands are shifted from one place to another by the earthquakes. And then the final act of judgment is the hailstorm and the size of the hailstones, a talent weight. Now, the Greek talent was 56 pounds. The Jewish talent was 114 pounds. Well, down in Texas, we used to have hailstones sometimes as big as baseballs. But this beats the Texas story altogether. But the very interesting thing is that we have that at the time of Joshua. You will recall that we're told in Joshua 10:11, it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Bethron, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Ezekiel, and they died. But the Roman catapults threw stones this size into Jerusalem at the time that Titus came. And that's according to the historian Josephus. So that this is something that is miraculous, but it ends a great tribulation period. Now, we have given to us here in chapters 17 and 18 the two Babylons that are to be judged. We see the apostate church first in the great tribulation, chapter 17. And then we'll see not only the religious Babylon, but commercial Babylon in chapter 18. Now, we see, first of all, the great harlot riding the wild beast, and then the wild beast destroys the great harlot. That's the picture that's before us. Now, friends, in many ways, this is the most frightful chapter that there is in the Word of God. There's nothing quite equal to this. Here in the great tribulation period, as we've indicated, many great issues are brought to a crisis. 
and it is difficult to keep them separated. And many fine expositors disagree on details here in the Great Tribulation period. As we've gone through it, I know that there have been several that take a little different position, although the system of interpretation they agree with, but we disagree on details. And may I say that I do not think is too important. That is evident here in the two Babylons in chapter 17 and 18. Now, there are several questions that arise here. Are there two Babylons? And are they in two different geographical locations? Are they representative of two different systems? Are they two literal systems, or are they the same? The answers to these questions, I think, will become clearer as our redemption draweth nigh. But it appears at the present time, that is, in my judgment, that two distinct cities are in view. Now, in chapter 17, it's Mystery Babylon, the Cosmic Church, the Apostate Church, of Thyatira, which permitted Jezebel to teach, which becomes the apostate church of the Great Tribulation. It has attained the goal of the present-day apostates of all of the great systems of the world, Romanism, Protestantism, pagan religions, and the cults, and the isms. And may I say to you, even in our independent and so-called Bible churches today, there will be those that are not believers that go into a great organization in the Great Tribulation period. It may call itself a church, but it's not. The Bible calls it a harlot. The Word of God labels it a harlot. And you can't have it any worse than that. This is ecumenical ecclesiasticism of the one world church. And the location of this system, well, it could be in Rome. I think that's the city that's in mind here. But friends, Geneva, where the World Council of Churches is, is also included. And I think that many other places also. Los Angeles can make a healthy contribution to it if I know Los Angeles, and I think I do. Now, it's called Mystery Babylon, because of its origin. You see, at the Tower of Babel, man attempted to rally against God. Under Nimrod, Babylon became the origin of all false religion. Now, the dream of Nimrod will be realized in the first half of the Great Tribulation when the cosmic church dominates the wild beast. The church that should have been the bride of Christ is a harlot here. You see... This church is guilty of spiritual fornication, selling herself to the world for hire. This is the church that says, I am rich and increased with goods, and I have need of nothing. Now, when we were looking back at the seven churches, you remember I said, I believe it's the church in Philadelphia that goes out at the time of the rapture of the church before the Great Tribulation period. And he said to that church, I'm going to keep you from the hour that's coming on the earth. Well, we've been in that hour a long time now in this study, and it's the great tribulation period. Now, his church does not go through its rapture. But who's raptured? Not denominations or not individual churches, but his church are believers, those that are in Christ. Now, that's the group 
that are taken out. And the rest of the crowd of church members are left here on this earth. As Dr. George Gill used to put it, he says, some churches the day after the rapture, when they meet on Sunday, well, that would mean it's coming on Saturday, but regardless, the next Sunday, many of the churches will meet and won't miss a member. And that group will go into the great tribulation period. But let's understand, they're not believers. That is not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's never labeled his church. This is called a harlot. And you can't make it any worse than that. This is the pseudo-religious system. And Dr. Pentecost, in his excellent book, Things to Come, has given this comment concerning the harlot system. The beast who was dominated by the harlot system rises against her and destroys her and her system completely. Without doubt, the harlot system was in competition with the religious worship of the beast promoted by the false prophet, and her destruction is brought about so that the beast may be the sole object of false worship as he claims to be God. Now, Babylon is to be rebuilt, as we have already seen that from Isaiah and also Jeremiah. And we see here this destruction of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. Now, ecclesiastical Babylon is destroyed by the wild beast. Commercial Babylon is destroyed by the return of Christ. Ecclesiastical Babylon is hated by the beast. Commercial Babylon is loved by the world. Ecclesiastical Babylon is destroyed at the beginning of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Commercial Babylon is destroyed at the end of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. That is, at the very end. Now, Zechariah had something to say about that in the fifth chapter, and I'm not taking time to turn to that. Now, I want to read verses 1. I think I'll read down through verse 3, and I'm going to read from my translation again. I don't recommend it, but we are giving you the literal. And there came one of the seven angels that had the seven bowls and spoke with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great harlot that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and they that dwell in the earth were made drunken with the wine of our fornication. And he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored wild beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns." Now, as we come here to this great harlot riding the wild beast, and it's frightful. That beast, by the way, is the Roman Empire that will be brought back together again by Antichrist. And I think with the assistance of a false church, that is a system that will be made up, I think, of folk from all groups. To try to label this one group, I think, has been a mistake on the part of some in the past. Now, this is the great harlot, and I do not have words to describe how frightful this picture is here. Now, the church of Thyatira only permitted Jezebel to teach. 
But the apostate church of the Great Tribulation is a harlot more frightful than was Jezebel. And it is a church that's made up of church members who are not believers, are of the body of Christ, and this is the group that enters the Great Tribulation. Now we're told certain things about her, that she sitteth upon many waters. Now that means great masses of people and nations. It will control pretty well the world. And the kings of the earth committed fornication. Shows that there is an unholy alliance between church and state during that period. May I say this, that this movement today of bringing all religions together, in my book, it's not of God. It certainly falls into the pattern of this false church that is to appear and isn't even dignified here by the name of church. It's going to call itself, I'm sure, a church, but it's not. And I believe that this movement is more dangerous to our own country than communism is. I believe it's more dangerous than the new morality is. And I believe it's more dangerous today than any other movement. I think it is the number one dangerous movement today. This is going to be a power block that'll dazzle the unthinking mob. And they'll come under the influence of the wild beasts out of the sea, the wild beasts out of the earth. Now, they're made religious alcoholics. You see, when you reject the genuine, you are wide open for the spurious. And that is the thing that Paul said to the Thessalonians, that having rejected the love of the truth, they will believe the big lie. And so this cup of judgment will be pressed to the lips of the harlot. And who's going to destroy her? Well, the beast himself. You see, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they don't want her around because Antichrist wants to be worshipped. And he doesn't want competition. And this church will at least talk about God, although they don't believe in it. And this is the picture that's given to us. And he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored wild beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, he tells us here, that he was carried away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I think that we need to notice that there are two factors here that we haven't seen before. Into a wilderness. Now, remember that John was on the Isle of Patmos in the spirit for the vision of the glorified Christ and his message to the churches. And at that time, John was caught up to heaven. From then on, the scene shifts from heaven to earth. However, here we're told again that John was in the Spirit. Did he need a fresh anointing of the Spirit for this vision? I rather think so. Is the wilderness literal? Well, remember, this chapter is a vision where symbols are used. Now, around both Babylon and Rome, there is a literal wilderness, which is a matter of recorded history. Babylon was to become a wilderness, and in this connection... You could read Isaiah 47, 48, Jeremiah 50, 51. Now, outside of Rome is the wilderness, and it's called the Campania. We believe that the wilderness mentioned in this verse is literal, 
but also that it's a sign of the chaotic condition of the world brought about by the religious confusion of Babylon. Now, John saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast. And this is frightful and frightening. The wild beast has been identified as Antichrist and the empire over which he rules, the restored Roman Empire. Now, the woman is identified for us here in verse 18. The woman is a city, and the city is Rome, the religious capital of the world. Probably we should pick that up. For God hath put it into their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So that we can identify her. It is religious Rome which has inherited all of the religions of the world at that time. You see all of them, because the true believers out of Romanism, and there are many real believers there, the real believers today that are in liberal churches, and there are many, by the way. I've discovered that through this radio program. And there are believers today in some very weird systems. I'm convinced of that. Now, they'll all be raptured, and that leaves a church that's totally apostate. Not the bride of Christ, but it's called a harlot here, and full of the names of blasphemy. And that will show how far religion has departed from the living Christ. And it's clothed in purple and scarlet. And purple was the predominant color of Roman imperialism. Every senate and knight wore a purple stripe as a badge, and scarlet is the color that was also used. And gilded with gold shows the beauty of the outward display. But like the Pharisees, it is within, full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And the precious stone and pearls are pretty cold, though they may be genuine and are a sordid imitation of genuine, heartfelt religion. The Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees, "'Woe unto you!' Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye may clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they're full of extortion and excess. And a golden cup full of abominations is the religious intoxication of the anti-church. Now, not antichrist, but anti-church and a pseudo-religion, counterfeit Christianity, a fake and false gospel, and a sham and spurious system. This is the cup which makes the world drunk. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. That's Jeremiah 51, 7. And upon her farted is a name written. And this is startling, mystery. Babylon the Great, I'm going to have to reserve to next time that. But I want you to know that there's something revealed here that reveals that this one world church is not going to really be a one world church. I want to read verses 4 through 5. I'm reading this section in my translation. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and gilded with gold and precious stone and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, even the unclean things 
of our fornication, and upon our forehead a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, as we come back here to this, there are several things that we would like to say here. John saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast. And this is a frightful and frightening picture. The wild beast has previously been identified as the Antichrist, ruling over the restored Roman Empire. And the woman we have already seen is a city and a religious system. And that city, we believe, is Rome. Babylon, as later on we'll see, is the commercial center. And this is the city that has the seven hills. Horace wrote, "...the gods who look with favor on the seven hills." And Ovid added, "...but Rome looks around on the whole globe from her seven mountains." the seat of empire and abode of the gods. And Augustine put it like this, Babylon is a former Rome, and Rome is a later Babylon. Now, in these verses, the city of Rome is assuredly in view. The woman, the harlot, representing a religious system that will be during the great first part of the Great Tribulation when the true church is removed from the earth. And this religious system, as the symbol given to us here indicates, dominates and rides the Roman Empire at the beginning of the Great Tribulation period. And certainly Antichrist just doesn't like that. In fact, the matter is, he's going to do something about it, as we shall see today. Now, this is just about as frightening as anything could be. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now, I know that we live in a day of new morality and that a woman today has the same sexual freedom that a man has, that is, according to the new morality. But I'm a little old-fashioned and I'm a square and, and I still think the Word of God is right. I think the finest thing in this world is a woman and that God has made her that way. And when she marries, she is brought into a relationship where she gives a man. In fact, it's what puts a man into orbit. And it's my firm conviction today that the thing that's lacking in our civilization is that woman has not been liberated, but she's actually been enslaved and become more of a sex symbol than she's ever been before, and that instead of taking a place where she can lift a man to the height, she can pull him now down to the depths. And the picture of that woman, and it's the lowest picture that you can have, is a picture of a harlot. And here is the picture. You may not like it, but this is the picture that's in the Word of God. Now, the true church is a mystery in that it was not revealed in the Old Testament. But the anti-church, or the church of the Great Tribulation, although I hasten to say 
It's never once called a church in the New Testament. It is called a harlot. That's putting it plain enough. And it's a mystery in that it was not revealed until John wrote Revelation 17. Because the true church left the earth, what happened to the false? What happened to the phonies? What happened to those that were just church members? Well, they entered the Great Tribulation period. And the system went on. The organizational church continued. But it's not called a church. It's a harlot. And it's removed from Christ. And we are told, Paul said, "...for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now hinders will hinder until he be taken out of the way." Now, the anti-church is the antithesis of the true church, which is the virgin bride of Christ. And it is the consummation of the working of the mystery of iniquity. It's mystery Babylon because it's given this designation as Jerusalem is called Sodom, by the way. Babylon is the fountainhead of all false religion. Therefore, she's the mother of the harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I think this is by far Scripture's most expressive and vivid picture of awful and abominable sin. Sex and false religions are related. You can be sure of that. And I believe that many a young person today is really missing it in marriage when a girl doesn't come as a virgin to the marriage the first time, and the man has not kept himself for the marriage. Now, we have here in verses 6 and 7, and I'm going to read them. And maybe before I move into that, I should also say this. Did you notice that this mystery Babylon is called the mother of harlots? That's interesting. The mother of harlots, not singular. Now, that means that all of this ecumenical church today that is coming together has had a lot of problems. They've, I think, decided now that they can't just water it down and all of them come the same way. That after all, there are psychological differences which they recognize. So each group is going to come into this great world ecumenical movement, but retain some of its peculiarities. Those that want to immerse, they'll immerse. Those that want to sprinkle, they'll sprinkle. And those that like elaborate ritual, they'll keep it. Those that don't want a ritual, they'll not have it. But this is the mother of harlots. There's going to be a whole lot of harlots here, friends. This is going to be a regular brothel that's going to be established in that day. Now, will you note verses 6 and 7? And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with a great wonder. And this is the first time that John had his mind boggled, by the way. Ours has been boggled before, but this really throws him. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou wonder? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman, the wild beast that's carrying her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. Now, the harlot not only makes others drunk, but she's intoxicated by her acts of persecution. And I think that believers at the end of the history of the true church, I think that we're not going through the great tribulation 
But I think that it's becoming increasingly difficult today to stand for the Word of God and the things of Christ. I'm finding it so, and I think other men are also. Now, the saints here refer, I think, to Old Testament saints, and the martyrs of Jesus, I think, refer to New Testament saints. Now, this indicates that Babylon is more than just what most people have said is Rome. It's more than that. It's an amalgam of all religions. All the true believers were caught up at the rapture. Babylon is the residue of what is left. It is a composite church which includes Protestantism, cults, Romanism, the whole lot that were not raptured, you see. Now, it is confusion compounded and is the fountainhead of all religious error and idolatry. Babylon in the Old Testament persecuted God's people, was the enemy of God. It was Babylon that put the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace before they would not worship the image. Now, John marveled at the harlot because this was something that was new to him. The angel asked John why he should wonder when he was present to explain the mystery of the woman. And John is here emphasizing the Roman Empire aspect of the wild beast rather than the Antichrist aspect. And I think we should note that. Now, notice verses 8 through 10. The wild beast which thou sawest was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss, and to go into perdition. And those dwelling on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written upon the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold a wild beast, because it was, is not, and shall come, that is, be present. Here is the mind having wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings, the five have fallen, the one is, the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a little while. Now, the wild beast speaks of the past history of the Roman Empire. The is not here refers to the present condition of the fragmented empire. In other words, the Roman Empire is not dead. It's just fallen apart in the nations of Europe today is about to come up out of the abyss, speaks of the reactivation of the Roman Empire by Satan. Now, as we've indicated before, many have attempted that, but have never been able to put it together again. Charlemagne tried it, Napoleon tried it, Hitler tried it, Mussolini tried it, and today the United Nations tried it, but so far it hasn't worked. But the wild beast, the Antichrist, will put it back together again, you'll have the Roman Empire. Now, it is not refers to the present condition, you see, of the fragmented empire. And is about to come up out of the abyss. That's the reactivation of it. Now, it's going into perdition, speaks of the destruction of the Roman Empire by the coming of Christ. The reappearance of the Roman Empire and its great power will win the admiration of the peoples of the world who not redeemed. They'll respect and worship the Antichrist for his brilliant coup d'etat. God's saints will have the mind of the Spirit. They'll understand and not be spiritually stupid. John said, But ye have the unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. But the anointing which ye received of him abideth in you, and ye needeth not that any teach you. 
but is the same anointing teacheth you all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now, there are seven kings. Now, that's taken by some, including Dr. Newell and Gauvet, who are two excellent commentators on Revelation. They say five have fallen. Well, Gauvet gives the following list. Julius Caesar was assassinated. Tiberius was poisoned or smothered. Caligula was assassinated. Claudius poisoned, and Nero committed suicide. That's the five. The one who is refers to Domitian, who was living in John's day, and he was assassinated. Now, the other that's yet to come refers to Antichrist. Now, other expositors, including Dr. Schofield and Walter Scott, they considered these seven as the different forms of government through which Rome passed. Kings, consuls, dictators, decimbers, and military tribunes. And the one that is, refers to the six, or the imperial form of government set up by Julius Caesar, and that which is to come would be the satanic form. Now let's move on here to verses 11 and 14. And the beast that was and is not is himself also an eighth, and is of the seven, and is going into perdition. And the two horns that thou sawest are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority as kings with the wild beasts for one hour. These have one mind, and they give their power and authority unto the beast. These shall war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him called and chosen. Now, at times, the wild beast signifies generally the Roman Empire, but it signifies also the last or eighth head, that is, the individual emperor who is Antichrist. Now, here the Antichrist is designated. He's the little horn of Daniel who puts down three horns, that is, three kings, when he comes to power. Now, I'm not taking time, and I wish I could take time to go back to Daniel, but we had that in the seventh chapter of Daniel. And you ought to have my book on Daniel. In that book, we go into a great deal of detail. Now, the beast that was refers to the past history of the Roman Empire under the emperors, and it's not refers to the end of imperial Rome with its global empire, which came to an end sometime between the 3rd and 5th century. And he is himself also the eighth, but is of the seven. Now, that identifies the Antichrist with a return to the imperial form of the restored Roman Empire. He's the little horn of Daniel 7. He's not only one of the ten horns, but is separate from them. And he is an eighth head in this seven, yet he's one of the seven since he restores the last form of government to Rome. Now, that will confuse you, I know. But that's exactly what is being said here. The ten horns are the same as the ten horns of Daniel. So we are talking about the same thing. Now let me read verses 15 through 18. And he saith to me, The waters which thou sawest where the harlot sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest and the beasts, these shall hate the harlot and shall make her desolate, 
and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and shall burn her down with fire. For God did put into their hearts to do his mind, and to come to one mind, and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman whom thou sawest is the great city, which hath a kingdom over the kingdoms of the earth. That is a religious system that dominated at first. But the thing is, the harlot is hated by Antichrist and the kings under him. And the waters here are explained to be the many, I think, ethnological groups as well as the nations of the world. Now, this figure here is in harmony with that used in the Old Testament. You could check that out with Isaiah 8, 7, Psalm 18, 4. Now, the position of the harlot reveals that she is ruling over them for but a brief time. The ten horns are ten kings, and that's told us here, who rule over the different divisions of the Roman Empire. Now, they in turn give over to the beast their kingdom, which solidifies the Roman Empire and enables the beast to lift himself up as a world dictator. Now, for a time, the beast, the Antichrist, is willing to share his place of exaltation with the harlot, since she has also sought to advance his cause while dividing his glory. This he hates. And the ten kings are one with him in this, the Antichrist not only breaks his covenant with Israel, but he also breaks his relationship with the apostate church. This hatred against the apostate church is so violent that the reaction here is described as the cannibalistic picking of her bones, then burning them with fire. What hatred! And this destroys the false church. This is what happens to the false church. It has no victory. It never comes into the presence of Christ. It is not raptured. It's destroyed by Antichrist. Now, in this, the Antichrist and his ten allies are fulfilling the Word of God and carrying out his will, as did the Assyrian, as predicted in Isaiah 10, and just as surely as Caesar Augustus did when he signed a tax bill that moved Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem so Scripture could be fulfilled. Now, by eliminating the apostate church, the way now is cleared for the worship of Antichrist, as advocated by the false prophet. And the woman is further identified as a city, the city of Rome. We're told that in verse 9. Now, this is the frightful but just end of the apostate church. However, it does not improve the situation but rather it introduces the darkest period for religion in the history of the world. The reign and religion of Antichrist is the darkest hour earth has known. Yet it is inevitable end of the distrust which began in the Garden of Eden when man didn't believe God. It was given a new impetus at the Tower of Babel when man built a tower against God, a rallying place for those against God. And finally, it culminated in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ when they rejected the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The only alternative was now to believe the big lie, the strong delusion, and it culminates in the catastrophic coming of Christ to this earth. We're going to see that when we get to the 19th chapter this is the just retribution of error and evil.